obviously work through uh, Psalm 90, which was the, the song of the month, the idea of being satisfied in, in God's love. And the, the story carries forward. Uh, Moses wrote Psalm 90, Psalm 91. Uh, no one seems to exactly know. There's hints of Moses' type of writing, his personality, but also David's is woven in there. Uh, but it's a psalm that, that carries the story forward. If we're looking at being satisfied in his love, then Psalm 91 is the idea of stop striving to rest in God. And we live in a very strife or strife-filled world. We're constantly fighting for control. We're constantly striving to master the situation, to have everything where we can have our hands on it. And you look at the world around you and around uh, us, and, and we recognize that that is the definition of humanity, and that was not different in the ancient world at all. And so Psalm 91 is a call to rest in God in a real way, not in the, the way that we often do as a church, uh, where we, I call put a little bow on an ugly package and pretend like everything is good there, but to actually rest in God. Uh, personally, it's hard uh, for me to, to let go. I, I like to be in control. I like to have the situation covered. Uh, and this is not a psalm that is telling us to just sit there and do nothing and let life flow by. At the end of this psalm, it's very active. It tells you exactly what you're supposed to do. Uh, as the last verses of this psalm, the voice changes from the psalmist speaking to God speaking to the psalmist and to us, uh, telling us exactly what we should do. But this Psalm is, again, stop striving, rest in God. And it, and it seems, if you look at our world, that we only cease our striving. We only fully seem, and I use that word over and over because it's a perception, it's not reality for us. We only seem to trust in God when we reach the catastrophic end of our resources. We'll live under the assumption that God will come into the equation only when the situation is dire, when something is tragic. In other words, when the pretense of our life, that we're in control, that we can handle it, is shattered, then suddenly we'll say, I'm going to rest in God. I'm going to rest in Him. I'm going to trust only in Him. And even when things are tragic or catastrophic, we will quickly revert to our own control or process or procedures or ideas as soon as we can. I go back, and this is going back in time a long way, but one that we all will recognize. Uh, how desperately did our nation turn to God with the attacks on 9-11? I mean, you, we saw it. Our government standing on the steps and, and doing different things that, that showed this reliance upon God. And then how quickly were we back to normal, back to feeling like we were in charge or in control, which is the illusion we like to give ourselves. As we look at this, and the whole idea is going to be uh, remaining in God's care, walking in His care, and then acting upon His care, uh, but the whole idea of, of resting in Him and not taking control yourself, I, I want to make sure that overarching in this is you don't have control. I want you to realize that. Uh, Psalm 91, as it draws us to Him, to, to rest in Him, and to, to find our discernment in Him and our power in Him and our comfort in Him, uh, it also exposes the fact that, that anything outside of Him would be a, a fake, an illusion. We think we have life in control. 
We resist, though, any thought of not calling the shots, and so we perpetually strive in life. We continue to feel the angst because we must keep up the pretense that we can handle it, that we have it in our grip, that we are in charge. Psalm 91 is a call to truly rest in God, to recognize that only He is really in control, and there is only security in Him. Now, as I said at the beginning, it confronts our pride. It confronts our, that's great for somebody else, but I have my life in order. I'm gifted in a certain way. I can handle anything. Uh, it confronts our pride. And whether you're in a situation where you say, I, I desperately want to rest in him, I can't stand all the striving, or in our world, more likely, you're too arrogant to realize that you are not in control uh, that you must be secure in Him to have any security. I hope that Psalm 91 will drive us to this point where we stop striving, then we truly rest in Him. And so one who is resting in God, as we're going to walk through Psalm 91, it's a look at someone who's going to be resting, who has stopped striving, who trusted Him completely, they will remain in His care. Verses 1 through 4 it says this, He that dwelleth in the secret place of the Most High shall abide, shall remain under the shadow of the Almighty. And we oftentimes don't want to be under the shadow of anyone. We, we want to be out of the shadow. We want to shine ourselves. And so we'll read that in a negative context. But the idea is if you're under His shadow, you're under His protection, you're under His care, you have His discernment, His power behind you. It goes on, I will say, this is a psalmist of the Lord, He is my refuge and my fortress my God, in Him will I trust. And the psalmist starts out at the beginning letting us know that his personal testimony, his driving focus is that God is his, very personal, my God, my refuge, my fortress. And then he goes on, Surely he, speaking of God, shall deliver thee from the snare of the fowler and from the noisome pestilence. He shall cover thee with his feathers and under his wings shalt thou trust. His truth shall be thy shield and buckler. And what we find in these first four verses is actually two metaphors of God's care. We find an impregnable fortress. He is my refuge. He's my fortress. It is the castle motif that's coming in here, that there's stone walls and someone can throw rocks against it, but there's nothing that's going to get through. It rebuffs any attack. And then we have the gentle wings of the bird, shielding its young from the elements. How? By bearing the brunt of the elements herself. Now, these two components of refuge and rescue come together, in all honesty, most beautifully on the cross. One writer notes this, it is on the cross where we see the absolute righteous power, that's the fortress, and tender sacrificial love of God, the bird, combine and shine forth brilliantly, both equally fulfilled. Yet here, the psalmist is using those two metaphors to encourage us by his personal example and by these illustrations uh, given to Israel as a whole, most likely to an army. The, the context that we're going to get into uh, in the next verses from 5 through 13 is being on the battlefield. It's the things that they would be afraid of. Uh, you see that the word pestilence comes in, disease. 
In ancient warfare, disease was the thing that they feared the most. They're all camped together. Uh, Alexander the Great didn't die in battle. He died from illness. This was the fear that would have woven themselves in. So this is to specifically the army of Israel, whether it's in the context of the desert or the context of, of David battling out there. And he's telling them and he's telling us that we must remain in God's care because our tendency is to run from his shelter and then sadly face the pain of that. So the psalmist encourages here in the first four verses, trust in the strength and security of the Almighty. And as I mentioned, if you're going to trust in his strength, you're most definitely not trusting in yours. And so it confronts us. Uh, This is an easy statement for someone who's at their wit's end. It is a much harder statement for someone who thinks they have it, that they've got it under control, that they're strong enough on their own. The call is to dwell, uh, to actually recognize the need of God, to trust in Him to protect and not trust in ourselves, to rest in His care, which is abide under the shadow of the Almighty. What's our propensity? We are like the young child, the toddler or older, that wants to run free near a busy highway, unaware of the imminent and deadly danger that is the road. We see the hand of restraint or protection as constricting instead of as refuge, as safety, as protecting life. I can't run. No, they're protecting you so you can run for a lifetime. But the child in that moment doesn't see that. And we often wrestle against God's care or resting in Him or recognizing, and this is the hard thing to confront our pride, recognizing that in all of life we need His strength that we cannot do this on our own. So trust in the strength and security of the Almighty. This is how the psalmist starts. Remain in His all-powerful protection and care, and also trust in the wisdom and guidance of the Almighty. He says that He'll be rescued from the snare of the fowler, and that's, I don't know how to trap birds or how that works, so I did a little research on it, but it's this idea of being tricked, right? That's what a trap is. And what we have to recognize is that By resting in God, we will be prevented from falling into this world's trap. It goes on, the snare of the fowler or the noisome or deadly pestilence. And those are important connotations because the world sets traps to destroy us. The world is not out there to win an argument, actually. They're not out there to zing us. They're not there to engage in trash talk. They're not just out there to embarrass you. The world's traps are designed to destroy you. That's why it's a deadly pestilence. The goal of the world is destruction, eternal damage. And so the psalmist petitions for the believer's trust and the wisdom and guidance of the Almighty. This is a guarantee that Scripture will give you. If you wander outside of the wisdom and guidance of God, then you can guarantee that you will fall into a trap. You might catch a couple but ultimately you will be snared. And I put as kind of an action step on the first portion of this, as we remain in his care, are we recognizing the real danger in life? Do we recognize the need to remain in his care, to trust in his strength, to trust in his security and not our own? And I go on to resting in his wisdom and in his guidance. How does that look? You have to be in his word. 
You have to know what he says. You have to be seeing life through the lens of Scripture. And if you say, I don't know how to do that. Well, one guarantee is you probably aren't. Um, But you have to be reading his word. You have to be taking life and making sure it's not your snap decision. It's not your emotion that moves forward, but instead it's filtered through what God has said. Trust his wisdom and trust his guidance. I put, are we grasping the eternal weight of wandering beyond his care? And I hope we can see eternity in perspective here. That, That we recognize that the game that's played here in life That Satan's objective and this world system's objective is not just to mess up life here. But it's to dupe and confuse the world so they end up in a place of eternal punishment. Now, it may seem that remaining in his care, and this is the, the propensity, right? The idea of resting in God's care implies inaction or nothing going on, that, that you're just huddled away. It, it, it seems that remaining in his care keeps you from living life, that it has you holed up in a castle, tucked away from the world, under his wings, hiding in the nest. That's the, the idea, that you're doing nothing. Yes, you're safe, but you're, you're not accomplishing everything. That whole misperception is quickly eradicated, though, when the psalm unfolds, because as I mentioned earlier, Israel is on the battlefield They're at the very brink of danger and adventure. And we see that one resting in God is still in the fray of life. And so the psalmist is not being naive here. It's not talking about this isolation. It's not talking about being a monk on a hillside where no influence of the world could ever come around because you're hauled away in this monastery. No, the idea is that we are in life. We're in the the midst of it. Nothing could be more dangerous than on the battlefield, especially in the ancient times, And this is where he drives us from 5 to 13 to walk by his care, to be in the fray of life and walk by his care. I'm going to read those verses again, and I want you in your mind to see an army gathered to do battle. Not a couple thousand people, but hundreds of thousands of soldiers ready to go into battle, all camped there. And it says, "'Thou shalt not be afraid for the terror by night.'" nor for the arrow that flieth by day, nor for the pestilence that walketh in darkness. And why does pestilence walk in darkness? Well, if we could see sickness coming towards us, we would avoid it. So this idea of disease that will run through the camp, it goes on, nor for the destruction that wasteth at noonday. And all these ideas from night to day to noonday at the brightest time is all saying this, you don't have to be afraid at any time of the day, and for any of the reasons. He goes on and says, A thousand shall fall at thy side, and ten thousand at thy right hand, but it shall not come nigh thee. Only with thine eyes shalt thou behold and see the reward of the wicked, because thou hast made the Lord, which is my refuge. And again, the psalmist giving that personal touch, my refuge. You've made the Lord, who's my refuge as well, even the Most High, thy habitation, There shall no evil befall thee, neither shall any plague come nigh thy dwelling, for he shall give his angels charge over thee to keep thee in all thy ways. They shall bear thee up in their hands, lest thou dash thy foot against the stone. Thou shalt tread upon the lion and adder, the young lion and the dragon shalt thou trample under feet. Now, sadly, these verses here are often manipulated and misperceived. Often people will name it and claim it here and think that they will avoid any temporal struggle or suffering. 
If you trust enough in God, have enough faith, you will not encounter any of these problems. And if you encounter any of these problems from their perspective, from their marketing campaign, then you don't have enough faith. And usually people that say that, their faith is ultimately linked to you giving them some type of money or something that will help grow your faith and grow their coffers. So it's the name it and claim it to, to characterize it. But, but let's be honest, it, it weaves into the fabric of our lives. We will start saying to God, well, you haven't been faithful because I'm sick or I'm facing this problem or I'm hitting these sufferings. And so it's a dangerous passage to be manipulated and misperceived because oftentimes we'll, we'll grab it. And it's a lie that the, the great deceiver uses to undermine God's care and character. Yet as you look forward to verse 15, you'll notice that the promise is that God is with us in trouble. He doesn't keep us from the trouble. And it's not necessarily keeping us from any suffering or pain on this earth. Satan himself chose to misuse verses 11 and 12 in his temptation of Jesus in the desert. He says to Jesus, jump off here because God says he'll have his angels not let you stub your toe. And so we see that, that in this context, we've seen Satan is going to have misused this uh, to tempt Christ to test God, obviously to no avail. Yet that misperception and misuse should never negate the truth being taught. What's the knee-jerk reaction to name it and claim it? It's to ignore it. It's to brush it aside. It's to not grab hold of it, to not understand what the psalmist is trying to say. And the idea is to walk by his care, that in the reality of life, we are to walk through it according to or in line with God's care, to know his influence. It's the whole point of 5 through 13 is to let you know that you are never outside of God's providence. You're never outside of God's plan. That as you journey through life, it's not about the genie of the Bible giving you what you want or keeping you from the bad things that may happen, but instead this promise that he's with you, that he walks with you, and that you are to walk life knowing his influence. And, and so we start off saying, and, and most of the verses are dealing with, that God walks through the everything of life. Through all of the times and trials that come our way, we don't need to be afraid to face it. The terror of night, that's the nightmare that comes true. That's horrific, right? This is the worst that could happen. I can't believe I had this nightmare, and then it, it is reality. You don't have to fear the arrow during the day. As they head to battle, imagine arrows being flung out, and all you have is a shield that you hope blocks the ones that come through. But you think, I can block one, but what about 30 that come through? And so there is an, if you read through the history of Israel, I mean, there's kings that get shot with random arrows in their chariots, and they drop down, and, and they're going to die there. This is something that was real. The disease that comes up unnoticed nor the destruction that approaches in broad daylight. In other words, you're afraid of something you're not even aware of. The arrow you know is coming. Disease you can't see, and then even the thing that approaches you that you never thought would approach you, it says you don't have to live in fear. That we can securely walk through life by his care, knowing that none of this waylays God's plan, None of it negates God's providence or his sovereignty. That's the question that comes up all the time. This is a, an actually overarching question that humanity uses to throw against God. Well, if there's a God, why is there evil? If he's all-powerful, why do we see bad things? 
which is a self-defeating argument we won't get into this morning. Uh, something we'll talk about uh, later next year on Wednesday nights. That's my little pitch for that uh, on apologetics. But the, the idea is that, that, that people struggle with that. And the psalmist is trying to tell everyone that that doesn't negate God's providence, his sovereignty. Nothing escapes his notice or influence. And I would, I would weave in here, you are never abandoned by God. When we rest in his care, there's a knowledge as we walk through life, and, and there's no way to predict what life is going to bring uh, to us. We live in a sinful wor- world, a sin-stricken world. We don't know what will, will be thrown against us in life, but we can know that he will be with us through it all, that his influence is there, that nothing goes unnoticed. The psalmist continues his reassurance by reminding the nation now, we get to that verse about God's angels, and that God's angels are involved in the smallest things of life. This is the misused one by Satan. So he he tells Christ, jump off a mountain and let's see if God's angels will make sure you don't stub your toe. Let's, Let's see if what God said is true. That's why Christ says, I won't test God. I don't, I don't need to test this. Because Scripture, that whole passage is all about the fact that God is true, and you don't have to test out if God is going to come through. We're the ones that don't come through. We're the ones that are unfaithful. His truth, the verse 4, is his faithfulness. God never fails. That's why he starts off of that. His faithfulness is a shield and buckler. It's every amount of defense you could have is there. God never fails us. And so Christ, when, he's, when this passage is thrown out, answers correctly. I'm not going to test God because God doesn't need to be tested. God's always faithful. But the point of the passage was never about testing God. The whole point of the passage is God is involved in the minute details of life. Have you ever had something come up and I have this happen in my mind? I'm like, well, this is, this is so trivial. This, this, is, this can't rank on God's scale of mattering. This is not on his radar, though I know it's on his radar. Our mind is such that we'll say, not important enough to bring to God. And what God is saying is all important to me. We will not stub our toe without God's divine oversight and specific care and consideration. Nothing will happen to us, even the stubbing of a toe, without God's involvement in that. And then beyond that, it says you're going to trample lions and reptiles. And, and I want you to understand that this is an illustration, so don't seek a lion and jump on him because you'll probably be eaten. Uh, and don't step on snakes. That's a general principle in life uh, to not step, step on snakes. But the idea is he's going to drive us to, to trample lions and reptiles, meaning we don't have to be terrified of the strongest things in life. That's the lion. The lion depicts strength and power. And we don't have to run when faced with the most overwhelming circumstances or resistance, that God is with us as we confront the lions in our life. Those strong beasts, and it's not being depicted, uh, the lion always is is strength. Even in Job, it's not always necessarily this positive beast. Uh, And they're beautiful, but yes, if you're alone with a lion, you realize not positive. So The idea is that you can come in and overcome this, that you don't have to run in fear. When we walk by his care, we're able to face this world's strongest resistance, their most powerful force, without fear. This is not foolish approach, but it's understanding that in Christ, 
we are capable that he will walk us through this. And then along with facing the strongest things, we can in his care be confident in the trickiest things of life. This is the adder or the cobra. And some translations are going to say snake again. Some are going to list it as a dragon. And, and the Hebrew bounces back and forth a little bit. Actually, the dragon can be Leviathan. And if you understand from our study of Job, Leviathan depicts Satan. This is Satan's representation. And so it's an interesting thing because the snake is always linked to intrigue, to deceit, to being tricky. Uh, it's the evil power of man and supernatural beings is what it's referring to. And it says that we can walk into the trickiest things of life. By walking in his care, we can know the confidence of not being tricked, not being caught by surprise, not being deceived. And, and think about that. The world is, is throwing this out constantly. One of the, the saddest things for me, this is going back seven, eight years. I was teaching teen Sunday school. There was like three or four teenagers there. And one young man answered some questions and I realized that the world had duped him through school, actually, through professors, that, uh, teachers that he connected with. I'm sure they were phenomenal teachers. They had definitely won a follower. And, and I looked at it and I just thought, how is this young man just running after this? this is, he's connected so deeply that he's answering what I would consider straightforward Bible questions with a twist every single time actually ended up confronting him an apologetic question, confronting him on this concept of how he viewed God. What I realized is that there's constant trickery going on, constant deceit gets woven through the fabric of everything in life. And we should be worried about being deceived, but, but the psalmist tells us, but if you're in his care, if you're walking by his influence, if you're connected to his involvement in life, you don't have to worry about that because you've been equipped to deal with it. We can overcome the evil men and powers as our Lord walks us through that deceit, giving his discernment. I put as a question, but do we walk in his care? Do we seek his influence in the everything of life, the smallest parts of our existence, against the strongest and against the trickiest? Have we resisted, as we look at this passage, the manipulation of God's care, in naming and claiming it. And instead, are we seeing that the only things that faithful people can lose in suffering are things that are finally expendable? Are we eternally minded? Because as we walk in his care, as we walk with his influence, as we journey through life this way, see what's going to happen is our eyes will lift up. And it's, it's hard to explain, actually. Someone will say, how do you walk through this this way? How can you have this faith in God through this turmoil? And, and most people that walk through it, they have a hard time connecting that dot. It's because their eyes have lifted up, because they are walking with his discernment, his perspective on life. Now, however, when we, again, talk about resting in God, of ceasing our striving, we are not to be passive, and that's what I love. So we, we've walked through, we're, we're, we're remaining in his care, and we have this beautiful picture of a fortress and a bird that is protecting. We see both the soft, tender care of the Lord, the sacrificial care, and we see this impregnable fortress, and, and that the image is, is perfectly right. Satan is not an equal foe to God. Satan is a being that we must 
recognize and fear and is much more powerful than we are, but doesn't even get close to who God is. And that's the impregnable fortress. And then the soft care of God, we see that. We need to remain in that care. And then we walk through the battlefield fears. We walk through arrows and disease and and things that will come up at night, terrors that we can't even imagine, and that we understand his influence, that that he's walking with us, that we walk by his discernment. But then there is this kind of question that kind of rises up. Okay, good, I'm just resting. I'm resting in him. What are we doing? Is this a passive action for us? Are we sitting around doing nothing and letting the Christian life unfold for us? As long as you do nothing, you'll be okay. And that's not how the psalmist leaves us. Resting in God means that we act upon his care. And and I want to mention this before reading the verses, that the voice of the psalm changes. And by voice, I mean that the person who is speaking. Up to this point, the psalmist has been speaking to us. He's been sharing his personal testimony where it's my God, my refuge, my fortress. He reminds him, this is my God and this is your habitation. Very much personal pronouns. But then you hit verse 14 and and all of that switches as we looked at acting upon his care. The voice changes. God is now speaking and is talking to us. The he is referring to us no longer referring to God. And so verse 14 says this, because he, because we have set our love upon God, so because he has set his love upon me, the me now, the personal is God speaking, therefore will I deliver him. I will set him, high, set him on high because he hath known my name. He shall call upon me and I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will deliver him and honor him. With long life will I satisfy him and show him my salvation. See, in the midst of resting in him, of ceasing our striving, we're called to be active. And there's three action steps that God lists as he lays out his faithful promise. And again, go all the way back to four. It is his truth or his faithfulness that we trust in. We don't have to test God. That's what Christ did not in his temptation because God doesn't need to be tested. He is always faithful. And now God is saying, be active in my care. And there's three things. And the first one is to love him. It says, because we have set our love upon God, therefore God will deliver us. Now, this love is to be a yearning love. The word there and, and our English language, as much as I love it, isn't always the most descriptive. And so as you go in Greek and Hebrew and even other languages around the world, they are much more descriptive. There's more words to attach to it. So this word love in Hebrew is saying it's a yearning love which clings to the loved one. It doesn't let go. This is not the shallow worldly love that is built on fickle emotion. What we watch and see portrayed, oh, I love this person. That's because emotionally you're, you're moved at this moment. That's not the love that's here. Our love for him, as we learn in the New Testament, is because he first loved us. And the love we have for him is to be an abiding love. It is a love that perseveres. So when you read and see this word for love, in Hebrew, it's, it's, and some translations will say, it's a, a love that holds fast. And that means it perseveres, it grips, it clings. It doesn't let go. And so God says, for us as we rest in God, what are we doing as we rest? And it says you're to love him. 
You're to have a love for him that perseveres, that holds fast. The person acting upon God's care will love God and then will also know him. It says God will lift high. And, and the word lift high, the, the, the idea, and I'll give the illustration, is to protect the individual who knows God's name. To know God's name implies knowing God deeply. I want to tell you what it is not. It is not referring to knowing about God. There are a host of people, especially in the United States and in the Western world, that know about God, that can recount quote-unquote, the gospel, but they do not know God. They know about God. And so God is saying here, the one that knows my name, that, that, that knows me deeply, it means that you live your life with the Lord in mind constantly as he has revealed himself to us. The stipulation of knowing God's name means you understand or know God's character, that you're engaging with God as he has revealed himself. And why do I emphasize that? The reason is, is because we tend to engage with God as we wish to perceive God. That's not knowing God. Knowing God is to engage with God as he has revealed himself to us through his word as it's stated there, without apology. It is not to know the God you've made up. That is called an idol. That is not God. You know God is to know him as he's revealed to us. It is not to think about him periodically, and it's not to think of him from your perspective. To know God's name is to think of him as revealed in Scripture and to have that thought of him permeate the whole of your life. What do you do when you rest in God? You love him with a love that clings, that holds on, that will not let go. It holds fast. And then you are to know him, not in the fickle way that we tend to do, not in the periodic way and not from our perspective, but instead to know him as he's shown us who he is through his word and to let that permeate the whole of our life, that, it, that it's every thought and everything. It is this person that will be lifted up, which means protected. What is the connotation? Why lifted up? And think of floods raging through an area. What do you need to do if there's a flood washing through the ravine that you're in? Well, you need to get above it. And so it is the idea that God will take you and lift you out of the danger. He will lift you high. It's not about glory and elevation. He, sp he speaks of that at the end, but it's about protection. As we know who God is, we are avoiding the turret that's coming down the ravine that we need to just get above, and God's going to lift us up out of that, out of the flood water, set out of harm's way. We must know God deeply if we're to be protected from the attacks of this world or Satan. We must know him to not buy into the lies this world says about him. I go back to the teenager seven, eight years ago. Why is it heartbreaking to listen to his answer? Because he doesn't know God. And he's bought into the lies that his teachers have told him about God and this twisted, ugly version that he's recounting. And it's a God of his own making. And I was able to confront him with it, not in the sense of a redemptive way, because, of course, he'll acknowledge the argument at the moment, but nothing changed in life. 
Because when you don't know God, you'll believe what this world says about him. And what this world says about God is a lie. Now, in everything, he desires that we seek him. He says to call upon God and God will answer. And what he's talking about is seeking him in prayer. He's saying to Israel, and, and, and as God takes over, the voice of God is speaking here, and it's, it's saying, come to me. Now, it's not a prayer to get a rubber stamp from God on our plans, but it is a prayer that seeks to know God's will and ask for the strength to accomplish it. And so, as a, as a reversal of what we typically do, instead of striving for control, of attempting to play God in our own lives— the psalmist ends with God speaking. The psalm closes and he says, put your effort toward loving God, knowing God, and seeking God. And as one commentator noted here, he says, here is a psalm for every believer every day. Well, why is that? Because every day we're going to battle this idea that we're in control, that I have my life in my hands, that I can move the situation as I desire that I'll need God if things get tragic, but I don't need God every day. I don't need necessarily his involvement in the toe-stubbing moments of life, that I've got my life in my hands. And every day as we look at this, it's not just a psalm for somebody who's struggling or at the bottom who, who, who's needing to rest in God. Actually, the person that needs to rest in God is the overconfident soldier. It's the one on the battlefield that says, there's not going to be an arrow that hits me. Nothing's going to happen to me because I know how to hold my shield. I know how to swing my sword. I know how to walk through life. I've got this under control. That's the one that needs to be confronted with Psalm 91 and say, rest in God. Stop striving. Stop pretending that you are in control. Rest in your Lord and Savior. Recognize that he is both the fortress that cannot be breached and the sheltering wings of a mother bird taking the affront of the elements for us so that we can be rescued from them. Commit to walk by his care in the everything of life, from the smallest detail to the trickiest issues and even the, the impossible-seeming circumstances. Walk by his care. Walk without fear. Yet do not sit idly by. Instead, act upon his care. Put your effort in truly loving him. And the call is to cling to him. Cling to the Lord in love. Know him as seen in his word and live every moment of your life with him in mind. And pray earnestly, seeking him, seeking his will and seeking his strength. Let's pray.